Well, please turn in your Bible to the forbidden chapter. The forbidden chapter, that's what we're going to look at today. And if you don't know what the forbidden chapter is, let me tell you a story uh, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. When I was in college, I had the privilege of spending a semester in Israel, studying in Israel. And while I was there, I attended a church that was pastored by a Jewish man named Minno Kalisher. Uh, Minno Kalisher had a father, Zvi, uh, who was a Jewish Holocaust survivor. Uh, he survived the Holocaust, and after World War II, he immigrated to Israel. And it was in Israel as a young man that he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And after coming to know Christ as a young man, he became a zealous evangelist. Um, he would go into Meisharim, the ultra-Orthodox section of Jerusalem. Uh, Meisharim is where the Haredim live, uh, Orthodox Jews who strictly follow rabbinic law and who have been known to get physical with people who try to share Jesus with them. And uh, Zvi had a couple of advantages in that setting over uh, you and I. Uh, as a Jewish man who had survived the Holocaust, uh, he was tolerated out of respect for the elderly uh, when I was in Israel, out of respect for the elderly, and also out of respect for the fact that he had survived the Holocaust. And he became so bold because of, uh, you know, the past that he received, if you will, uh, for his reputation and what he had been through, he became so bold that sometimes he would even, even venture into the rabbinic school in Meisharim and uh, find uh, a man who was poring over Scripture and ask him questions. And what he liked to do was ask questions about Isaiah 53. He would ask him questions like, uh, of whom uh, does Isaiah speak when he talks about this person who suffers and bears sin. So, what's your interpretation of this chapter? And often lively debates followed, and uh, Zvi would invite men to come over to his home and talk further about it, and every now and then one of them would take him up on it. And Zvi called Isaiah 53 the forbidden chapter, and the reason he called it that was because in his experience, uh, most Orthodox Jews didn't want to discuss it. Now, that's not to say that there isn't an Orthodox Jewish interpretation of Isaiah 53. There is. But in practice, Zvi found most of them simply preferred to ignore it. It's the most beautiful description in the Old Testament of Messiah taking away people's sins, and yet it's been omitted from the schedule of weekly readings in the synagogue. It is as clear a description of Jesus of Nazareth as you will find anywhere in the Bible, yet it was written over 700 years before He was born by the prophet Isaiah. Let's read the text together before we examine it uh, this Sunday. And I want to remind you before we read it, the first rule of Isaiah 53 is that it doesn't begin in Isaiah 53. What we like to think of as, of, as Isaiah 53 is this prophetic and poetic song about the servant of the Lord. But if you pay attention to the song, the song doesn't start in Isaiah 53. It starts back in Isaiah 52, verse 13. So let's pick up uh, the text there. In Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, we read this. This is the Lord speaking in verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. 
Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Last week, we looked at Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15, and we encountered an enigma. The Lord was speaking about the most preeminent servant of His that He will send into the world to do His work, and He informs everybody at the outset that this servant will be successful. He, 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 the, the mission He's coming to accomplish, He will prosper in it. And not only that, He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And yet, in the very next verse, we learn that the servant will experience a shocking suffering. Somehow, some way, his appearance will be marred to the point that people barely recognize him as an individual, and his form will be mutilated to the point that he'll barely look human. How does that fit together? How can such a successful, celebrated servant of the Lord go through such suffering? Well, we're given the answer to that over in chapter 53, verses 11 and 12. But before we can get to that answer, the, the, and before we get the, the enigma solved, the speaker in the song changes. In Isaiah 53, verse 1, we have a new speaker. The speaker shifts. This is no longer, in Isaiah 53, 1, it's no longer the Lord speaking about His servant. We now have an unnamed human being speaking about the Lord's servant and the suffering He will go through. The question then becomes, 
Who is this human being? Who's the one speaking? Well, two proposals have been made. Because in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15, you see that many Gentiles will be saved, uh, what we learn there is that the servant's suffering, the news of his suffering won't stay in Israel. The news will go global, and many Gentiles will come to faith. Uh, Let's put it in Old Testament terms. Many Gentiles will become worshipers of Yahweh because of the work the servant does. And so, because that's happening in 52 verse 15, some people believe that the speaker here in verse 1 is one of those Gentiles who comes to faith in the Lord, uh, and he understands that the suffering servant, the, the preeminent servant God has sent into the world, is the nation of Israel who has somehow suffered on behalf of the Gentiles. That is the Orthodox Jewish interpretation of this passage. But there's problems with that interpretation. Number one, the personal pronouns used to describe the servant are individual pronouns. He, him, his, they clearly refer to one individual who suffers, is rejected, and dies. Number two, the servant who suffers does so voluntarily. He does so silently without opening his mouth in opposition to his suffering. Uh, That's never been the case with Israel. And then third, the suffering servant is described as innocent in verse 9. But Isaiah, and the witness of all the Old Testament prophets, uh, says that uh, Israel is guilty. They're guilty of sin. They need someone to deliver them. In fact, in the context of this song, uh, from chapter uh, chapter 49, 50, and 51, they all talk about how Israel has been estranged from God and how God will redeem them and restore them to Himself. The nation of Israel is portrayed in the, in the chapters that uh, precede this as sinners who need to be brought to the Lord. The nation of Israel can't suffer or die in the place of anyone to atone for their sins because they're a bunch of sinners themselves who need someone to make atonement for them. The shift in verse 1 can't be a Gentile speaking about Israel's uh, suffering on behalf of the rest of the world. The other interpretation of the shift in speakers in verse 1 is that this is a Jewish man speaking on behalf of the nation about the Messiah. This is the most natural way to understand the pronouns we, us, and our. Those pronouns refer to uh, Israel witnessing the Lord's suffering but misunderstanding its meaning. What you have then in Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 9 is a lament of a yet future generation of Israel. Uh, And though this passage has been viewed by us Christians uh, as a triumphant song about God redeeming sinners, the fact is verses 1 through 9 are sad. They're a lament. They're a song of grief. They're a poetic song of regret and sorrow. Um, I'll remind you again that the structure of this song is that there are five stanzas of three verses each. And in the first and last stanza, the Lord is speaking, but in the middle three stanzas, uh, we see uh, a Jewish man speaking on behalf of the entire nation, and as he does, he is lamenting the way that they observed the suffering of the Lord's servant, but misunderstood what it all meant. The middle three stanzas of this song then, listen to this, they constitute the greatest confession that will ever be made by any nation in the history of the world. According to Scripture, there is only one nation that as a nation will come to Christ and be saved, and that is the nation of Israel. Yes, many Gentiles 
will be saved, many individual Gentiles will be saved, and there will be individual nations influenced by the individuals who've uh, come to Christ, and they will be salt and, and light. Yes, um, yes, uh, God is redeeming Gentile people from every tribe and tongue and nation, but only one nation as a nation will unanimously turn to Christ and be saved, and that is Israel in a future day. Notice then that verses, in verses 1 through 9, all the verbs are in the past tense. That's also another observation that's important to make. Again, as Christians, we see this prophecy as uh, something that was fulfilled when Christ came, and much of it has been, right? Jesus already has been pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That's been fulfilled in this passage, and yet Isaiah didn't give the prophecy in the future tense. He didn't say, the servant that God is sending will be pierced through for our transgressions at some unspecified point in the future. No, no, no. What the speaker is saying is was. He was pierced through. So, what's going on here? Well, this isn't just a prophecy about what the servant will do. This is a prophecy about how Israel will respond to what the servant will do. When the servant comes, they will misunderstand his suffering. They will reject him. And yet, a future day is coming when Israel as a nation will look back at their history and they will say this about the Messiah they have long rejected. These three middle stanzas then are a repentant lament. Yes, they speak prophetically about what will happen on the cross, but they also speak of it in retrospect. Uh, this is Israel's brokenhearted lament. This is a confession of a generation of Israel yet to come. Down through the centuries uh, of church history, many Jews have come to faith in Jesus, but they have always been the minority among their brethren. Um, this is uh, a very personal passage that uh, I think in a very personal way any individual Jewish person who repents, uh, could, they could pray this prayer of lament, uh, and in that sense it would fit them. But in the sense of the entire nation confessing this lament, that hasn't yet happened but it will happen in the future, and Zechariah tells us about how that will come to pass. According to the prophet Zechariah, in the final days, the whole world will turn on Israel. They will come against Israel to annihilate it. They will come against Israel, uh, if you will, uh, to finish Hitler's final solution and destroy the Jewish people. And against that onslaught, Israel will be defenseless. Uh, they'll have nowhere to turn, they will know that this is the end, this is the end of the game, we're all going to be wiped out. And in that moment, when it becomes obvious and inescapable to everyone in the nation that there's no hope, in that moment, the Lord's servant will return from heaven, intervene, defend them, and set about destroying all the nations that came against them. And this is how Israel will respond to that deliverance. You would think that uh, in, in the context of that moment, they would all rejoice, right, that they were delivered. But this is what Zechariah says they will say when the servant of the Lord uh, saves them. And this is the servant of the Lord speaking, Zechariah 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem. 
The verses we're studying this morning in Isaiah 53, they record that repentant mourning of Israel when they look back on the one whom they have rejected and pierced. So when we read Isaiah 53, 1, and the speaker has changed, and the speaker says, who has believed our message? The speaker is a future uh, Jewish person representing a future generation of repentant Israel. Uh, and notice the word our in verse 1. This is very important for interpretation. Uh, our doesn't mean that we have a message that we were sharing, and we're so disappointed by the response our message has gotten. The word believed at the beginning of verse 1 is a passive participle in relationship to the message given. So, the sense of it is this, who has believed the message heard by us? Who has, who has received the message that was delivered to us? It's a, a, a rhetorical question lamenting how few of us have believed the message we received. It's not that Israel has a message no one will listen to, and then the speaker breaks into lament over that. It's that the message given to them, they did not believe. Now, this is very important. This is a very important detail. Virtually every Jew in the world since the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus has heard about Jesus. No other ethnicity in the world has had such a thorough exposure, exposure to Jesus as the Jewish people have. And the reason for that is primarily because the rabbis have been getting out in front trying to educate their people about Jesus so that they reject them, right? The, the rabbis are trying to inoculate everybody to believing in this Jesus of Nazareth. They're trying to preempt the message. And, even to, and, and it's gotten to the point that even secular Jews who ignore Moses, who never read Scripture, who don't keep Sabbath, who never go to synagogue, even they understand you can't be a good Jew and become a follower of Jesus. It's been taught to them by the rabbis, and it's the majority opinion in their culture. Almost every Jew knows Jewish history. They're aware of the prophets, at least in some superficial way. They know some of the New Testament claims about Jesus. They have a view of what happened and how to interpret it. And the verses we're looking at today, Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 9, they sum up the view of the majority of Jewish people to this day nicely. They don't believe the message. Look at the last half of verse 1. Who has believed uh, the report given to us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In the chapters leading up to this one, God speaks about restoring Israel to Himself with His mighty arm, through His mighty arm. A good example might be back in chapter 52, verse 10. Uh, he says, uh, the, Lord's, the Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. So, God is going to restore the hearts of Israel to Himself when He's bearing His holy arm. That's connected to the salvation He's bringing. And if you look at 52 verse 10, you notice that this salvation is for Israel, but all the other nations of the earth are also invited. That's good news for us Gentiles. Uh, and so, what you have in Isaiah 53 verse 1 then is two rhetorical questions of lament. Who has, who has believed… <coughs> excuse me a Jewish man is saying, who has believed the message we received? Answer, very few of us. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Answer, to our nation more than any other nation in the world, but we've rejected the message. And so, the question then becomes, as you finish verse 1, why? Why is it that the majority in Israel have rejected 
the message. Why is it that when the Lord's servant came to his own people, they didn't receive him? Why is it that in every generation since the servant's coming, the majority of Jewish people have heard about him and rejecting it, rejected him? Why is it that the shocking servant of the Lord we learned about last week became the rejected servant of the Lord by his own nation? Well, I see four reasons. There's two in our text today, but there's two other ones in other parts of Scripture that I think are important to see first. The first reason that Israel has rejected the Lord's servant, it comes to us in Isaiah 53, but down in verse 6. Look at the beginning of verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. What that is a picture of with sheep, it's a picture of natural rebellion. By virtue of the corruption we've received through Adam, we are all rebels. It comes naturally. And so, this isn't just something that besets the Jewish people. This is also a Gentile problem. Uh, we reject God, and we try to run our lives our own way without Him. And the people of Israel suffer from that natural rebellion, just as we do as Gentiles. But here's the problem. It's not virtuous to be a rebel against rightful, loving authority. It makes us feel bad, and we desperately want to feel like we're good, noble, virtuous people. And so, the most effective way to go astray and to go your own way but still feel good about yourself is to ignore God. The best way to ignore your Creator is to claim there's no Creator and that everything we see was either pre-existing or came about with time plus chance. The best way to feel uh, good about yourself, even though you're rebelling from your king, is to nor ignore that there's any king and claim that it's your own life and you're going to live it however you want to. The best way to feel good about yourself going astray is to deny not just that there's a good shepherd, but to deny there's any shepherd, and so I have to go, my, I have to make decisions for myself because there is no shepherd guiding my story. And when you can manage to put the Creator and the King and the Shepherd out of your mind, going your own way doesn't feel bad anymore. It feels like you're being responsible. I'm just taking responsibility. I'm acting like I'm responsible for my own life. That's what it feels like when you ignore Him. We are all rebels. And the, and the most important uh, words probably in verse 6 is, um, each of us has turned to his own way. We want our own way, my own way. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I don't want people critiquing the decisions I've made. It's my life. I'm going to live it how I want to live it. Uh, that's the way that we think. And the servant of the Lord came to Israel, but they didn't want the message that he brought. They didn't want what his coming proclaims. Why? Because they're natural-born rebels, just like Gentiles are as well. But there's another reason, and it's a theological reason. In Romans 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul explains this phenomena of Messiah coming, Israel rejecting Him, but then the message of the gospel going out and many Gentiles being saved. He explains that whole sweep of redemptive history. And uh, Romans 10 and 11, it, it's, it's the perfect, it's the perfect cross-reference for our sermon today, but I can't go there because it's like two chapters. And you know me, if I had to try and explain two chapters, we'd be here a long time. So, I'll content myself, but I'll content myself with just using three verses today. Uh, in the first three verses of Romans 10, the Apostle Paul, himself a Jewish man, trained as a Pharisee before he turned to Jesus, he gives this theological reason for the people of Israel rejecting the Lord's servant. He says uh, in Romans 10 verse 1, 
uh, Christian brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. The reason Jews uh, have, uh, have believe, haven't believed the message given to them is because as a nation, the majority have been attempting to establish their own righteousness. They don't want the righteousness Christ supplies because they want to achieve righteousness on their own. They're not looking for a Savior because they don't think they need one. They have God's law, but they're still under the delusion that they can keep it. They have, most of them have an inadequate view of God's holiness. They have an inadequate view of their own sin, and they therefore still think that they can save themselves. They don't think of themselves as sinners in need of redemption. They think of themselves as suffering uh, people who are, who are righteous and who are virtuous, but who have suffered greatly because of anti-Semitism in the world. And that's why when Jesus came and they witnessed His power, they were happy to have Him as a king who would kick out the Roman oppressors. But when He chose instead to defeat sin and not to defeat the Romans, they rejected Him. Uh, when it comes to having a Savior from their sins, uh, the attitude of most people in Israel has been, Israel has no Savior, Israel needs no Savior. They want to save themselves. They're trying to establish their own righteousness. Uh, there's a powerful moment in John's gospel where he uses this very verse in uh, Isaiah 53, verse 1, that we're studying this morning. Uh, in John 12, it's during the Passion Week, and John records this. But even though Jesus performed so many signs, uh, which is a word for miracles, so many miracles before them, yet they were not believing in Him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah that the prophet spoke uh, when he said, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? They rejected the servant out of natural rebellion and because they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. They thought they were healthy and they didn't need the physician of the soul that Jesus claimed to be. But verse 2 of our passage, it gives yet another reason that the people of Israel rejected the Lord's servant when He came. Look at the beginning of verse 2. For He grew up before Him, the Him there is the Lord, Yahweh. Uh, he, the servant, grew up before Him, the Lord, like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Um, now, I will confess, when I first read that in English, I always read the text in English first and then I do my Hebrew homework. When I read that in English, I had no idea what it meant. And one of the reasons why is because these people lived a lot. They were much more agricultural than we are. They lived closer to the land. So let me see if I can explain what, what these agricultural illustrations mean. Uh, this last week, um, in part because of your generosity and kindness, Brooke and I uh, spent a few days away at Colonial Williamsburg. And Colonial Williamsburg is wonderful. Uh, it, it is a trip into the past, but it's a past that's manicured, and sanitized, and I'm sure smells a whole lot better than the past smelled. It's great. And there's less diseases too. Oh, and the water is cleaner. The water's way cleaner. <clears throat> it's great. Um, 
Uh, and so we, we toured Colonial Williamsburg. Well, one of the days when we were touring Colonial Williamsburg, if you've been there, you know that not only do they have the buildings and the tradesmen and everybody's uh, dressed up, there's like little cottage gardens everywhere, right? There's gardens everywhere, and if you like flowers and, and, and things, you can go tour those. And so we were walking through one of the gardens, and one of the reenactors was tending to an elderberry bush tree. I don't know which to call it. And in our house, we love elderberries. So every, every fall, Brooke buys some dried elderberries and, and makes this like syrup for us to keep us healthy during the winter months because uh, it has a lot of good vitamins and, and uh, properties uh, to keep you healthy. And so this woman could tell we're very interested in this elderberry tree that she's tending. And she asked us where we lived, and we told her, oh, Fredericksburg. And she said, oh, Fredericksburg is perfect, the Tidewater area. You can, you can grow elderberries. But if you, if you try to grow an elderberry bush, you have to give it regular attention because it will constantly shoot out sucker branches, uh, and you got to trim them. And, and the problem with sucker branches is that they spring up unexpectedly, uh, they rob uh, uh, nutrients from the soil, they sap the fruitfulness of the other branches that are growing the fruit, and so you constantly have to trim sucker branches. Well, the Hebrew word that we translate as tender shoot here, it's sucker branch. Um, when the servant came, he grew up in full view of the Lord, right? He grew up before him. What that's communicating is this. The Lord gave full attention to the uh, circumstances of the birth and early life and the growing up years of his special servant. It all unfolded according to the Lord's plan. But when it unfolded according to the Lord's plan, we looked at that plan and we thought he was a sucker branch. We thought he was this irrelevant, small, insignificant person, right? He's born into poverty, his dad's a manual laborer, and then he ends up growing up in Nazareth. We just, we looked at the plan and we thought he was a sucker branch, a small, irrelevant, insignificant person. He also looked to us like the root of a tree that pokes out of dry ground on someone else's property. Uh, not if you go to Israel, but when you finally make your pilgrimage to Israel, um, one of the things you'll find there is that during the dry season in Israel, the ground becomes parched and dry, and it can even start to, start to crack. And so if you're hiking, let's imagine you're hiking somewhere, and you see a root poking out of dry, parched ground, it means that the tree that root is connected to is a tree that nobody cares about. Because if they cared about it, if they were cultivating it and trying to get fruit off of it, they would water it regularly, especially in the dry season. And if they watered it regularly, that root wouldn't be sticking up out of parched ground because the ground wouldn't, wouldn't be parched. So, in other words, the servant looked to us like the root of a tree that prokes through the dry ground on someone else's property that nobody cares about, right? Uh, the servant came exactly according to the Lord's plan, but he looked to us like a sucker branch or an unimportant tree. There was nothing uh, impressive about his parents, right? They had no money, no social status. He came from an insignificant family. As he grew up, he didn't go get educated at the right schools, uh, or by the rabbis. He wasn't connected to aristocracy. His dad wasn't influential or famous. And so, we rejected him because his early life was unimpressive. But you know what? His adult life was similarly 
unimpressive to the Jewish people. Look at the end of verse 2. He had no stately form or, appear, uh, or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. Uh, the Hebrew words that we translate form and appearance, they're both used back in Genesis 29 of Rachel and her beauty, right? Uh, Genesis 29, New American Standard, Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Translation, she had an attractive body and an attractive face. That's what it's saying about Rachel. The problem is, when the Lord's servant came, it was the opposite. When the Lord's servant grew up into adulthood, the result was a man who wasn't well-built. He wasn't impressive. He wasn't good-looking. He wasn't tall, dark, and handsome. Well, he was dark. He was a Sephardic Jew. But he wasn't tall and handsome is the point I'm trying to make. Now, now think about what this means because, okay, even though we live in a different political system than they lived in, the, the same kind of human desires apply. You guys know this as Americans, all right? When it comes to politics and who people vote for in an age of, you know, media, pictures, video, Likeability is a big issue. Of course, there are always some voters who are so dedicated to their principles that they're going to vote for, you know, they're going to vote for one party all the time, and whoever that party nominates, they'll just vote for even if they don't like it. But there's a lot of swing voters, there's a lot of moderates, there's a lot of people in the middle, and if you put before them a candidate that's not likable and not attractive, they're going to be less likely to vote for them, right? And what this is saying is that the Lord's servant, he didn't have a physical appearance we were attracted to. He never would have made it in Hollywood. He never would have made it in politics because he didn't have a particularly attractive appearance. And once he began his ministry, the entourage he had, they didn't help, right? I mean, think about his entourage. None of them are brilliant. None of them are educated. None of them are, connect, none of them are, they, they don't have connections. They're not rich. They're not connected to the aristocracy. And he's doing religious work, right? None of them are trained scribes. None of them are Pharisees, Sadducees. None of them are priests connected to the high priesthood in Jerusalem. There's none of that. In fact, all of them, as far as we can tell, all of them were manual laborers like him and his dad with the one scandalous exception of the former tax collector, right? You know, so Levi, Matthew, he was a tax collector. But other than that, they were all manual labors. And so we looked, at, we looked at his early life, his credentials. We look at him. We look at the entourage he hangs around with. And we rejected him because he was unimpressive. He wasn't what we expected or wanted. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Is this not the carpenter's son? You look and see how many prophets come from Galilee, right? We looked at him, and he just wasn't what we expected, so we rejected him. He had an unimpressive upbringing, and he was unimpressive as an adult. Now, I want to argue with the speaker and say, well, what about all those miracles? But that's it's not in the text, so I won't go there. Uh, so, they rejected him because he was unimpressive. He wasn't what they were wanting. But they also rejected him, look at verse 3, because he was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Uh, the word forsaken here, it really means rejected. He was rejected by men. Um, people despised his claims, and they rejected him. Um, if I hadn't been so enamored 
with Zvi calling this chapter the forbidden chapter, I would have made the title for this morning's servant uh, um, this morning's sermon, The Rejected Servant of the Lord. We looked at the shocking servant of the Lord last week. I would have just called it The Rejected Servant of the Lord because of this word, forsaken, at the beginning of verse 3. It's what it's communicating about him. So, in other words, this Jewish man is saying, look, we looked around, and all of our leaders and most of our friends and family, they all rejected him, and so did we. Uh, but the question is, the question I have of the text is, why was he so despised? The word despised is used, and that's important because think about it. Uh, you have people come at you all the time uh, trying to sell you something or maybe trying to convince you of something, right? You've been proselytized probably at some point by the Jehovah's Witness or some other, you know, somebody else, and, and there are times when you hear a person out but you reject what they're saying, you're not going to join them, or you reject what they're selling but just because you reject it, it doesn't mean you despise them. You don't hate them. You don't have ill will. You're just, you're not going to buy what they're selling, but you don't hate them. Uh, you might even wish them well. So, here's my question. Why was he so despised? I get that he's rejected, but just because you reject someone, you don't have to despise them. Why does, uh, why does uh, despising him go along with the rejecting him? Well, Isaiah 53 doesn't expand on that and tell us why he was despised, but if you've read the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know the reason, because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us the reason he was despised. His ministry style, his whole view of money and possessions, what he taught about sexual desires and how to pray and how to worship the Lord, it didn't endorse our rebellion. When we saw the way he lived and the things he taught, we didn't feel affirmed or celebrated by it. In fact, we felt condemned. We felt convicted. All that ridiculous garbage about being born into a poor family when you could have been born to someone wealthy in the aristocracy, this whole plan by an all-powerful God where He gets laid in a feeding trough and grows up in Nazareth uh, to a manual labor, all of that garbage made our aspirations for power and reputation feel dirty. His voluntary, happy poverty made our love of money feel foolish. His willingness to suffer for others, it made our desire for comfort feel selfish. And so, to protect our aspirations for power and our love of money and our desire for our own comfort, we rejected Him. And because He put His finger on what made us tick, we despised Him for it. We took particular pleasure in loathing Him and what He stood for. In our hearts, we desperately wanted to interpret his life story as God cursing him, because if God cursed him and killed him, it would vindicate our rejection of him. It would justify our lifestyle. When the rebellion of the human heart and uh, God's servant, the servant he sent, comes face to face, right, and you hear what the servant teaches, there's really only two ways that can go, right? You either reject Christ or you repent and uh, turn to Him in tear-filled faith. If you witness the life and Jesus of uh, the life and the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth for yourself by reading the gospel accounts or by listening to them on audio, there's only two ways for it to go. Right? Uh, you either bow to it, or it's going to drive you crazy until you argue it away. We rejected Him because His life was so convicting. 
So, I, what you have here then is this. Isaiah prophesies ahead of time that even though many Gentiles will be saved by the work of this servant, chapter 52, verse 15, the servant will be rejected by the majority in Israel. And when you look at the response of the Jewish people today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. To this day, the majority of Israel rejects Him. Uh, they are not yet confessing this lament uh, as a nation. They've rejected Him out of natural rebellion uh, and in order to establish their own righteousness. They've rejected Him because He had an unimpressive life, and He led a life that is convicting. And let me clarify, this is very important for me to say this morning, because of the anti-Semitism that's out there, this is not a Gentile assessment of Jewish unbelief. This is a Jewish assessment of Jewish unbelief by a prophet, by the prophet Isaiah, and it's a prophecy about a future day of national repentance. So, these are words the nation of Israel will speak when they grieve over their national history of rejecting the Lord's servant. But how do they apply to us? How, how, how should they apply to us? Because I'm aware that most of us in this room are Gentiles, I, at least predominantly. I think we're a Gentile congregation. So, how do these words apply to us? Well, you need to speak these words of lament uh, about the Savior if your own personal history to this point has been rejecting Jesus. These are the words you need to pray in order for you to receive for the forgiveness of sins that He offers. Um, but I'm aware that many of you in here have already, you know, you've already bowed the knee to Jesus. You've already prayed this prayer. Uh, you want the righteousness He provides by being pierced through for our transgressions. So, what would I say to a, a Gentile Christian? Well, the Apostle Paul, again in Romans chapter 11, he talks about this whole phenomena, about why is it that when the servant came, the Jews rejected him, and yet the message then went out to all the Gentiles. And uh, this is one way he speaks about it. He talks about Gentiles as if we are wild olive branches that are grafted into a cultivated olive tree to bear fruit in, in God's orchard. And this is what he says, if some of the branches were broken off and you Gentiles, being wild olives, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in His kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. The exhortation for us Gentiles who've already come to Christ is to remain and to persevere in this faith. And we're also given a promise in this passage. Uh, in Romans 11, verse 11, Paul says this, I say then, yeah, Israel did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Uh, we've benefited from their rejection. Maybe we could say it this way. 
I'm aware that a very a modern, secular American person could read the Old Testament and say, well, you know, I reject it not just because of what it says about God and a creator and, and His moral law and all of that, but I reject it because it privileges one people, the Jewish people, above all other people. And that misunderstands God's plan. God chose Israel, but His intention from the very, very beginning was to bless all the other nations through Israel. They were meant to be a blessing uh, to everyone else. So, it's not like He was going to treat them as favorites and treat the rest of us like trash. That's not what's going on. He's intending to bless all Gentile nations through His chosen people. And what you see in Romans 10 and 11 is that He intends to bless Gentiles to the point that even when His chosen nation does what's wrong and does something negative, He still finds a way to use it to bless all the Gentiles. And if He can take their disobedience and use it for our good, just imagine what He'll do on the day when all Israel is saved. Uh, It's a reason we look forward to Christ's coming is because we're fans of Israel, and we look forward to the day when all of them will turn to the Lord and be saved. Well, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for Isaiah's reminder that Your Word will not return to You empty, but will accomplish what You desire and succeed in the purpose for which You send it. And we pray that these words about Your chosen servant would not return to You empty or harden anyone in their rejection of Jesus, but that through these words You would save and transform us. We look forward to the day when all Israel will be saved and sing this lament of repentance. We pray that You would bring that day to pass soon. In the name of Your servant, Jesus, amen.